0: Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm John Perry. I'm Ted Cupper. And today, before we get started with our podcast, I just want to do some quick uh, housekeeping because we have been, um, silent for a while and we got a few inquiries as to whether we were dead or not. So, uh, first of all, uh, don't take us out of your feed. We're not dead. And anytime we do go dark for a little while, uh, we are coming back. We will let you know if we ever decide to, um, to fold the podcast. And, uh, because both of us, um, now have some time, which we didn't so much before, We're going to do something we haven't done before. We're going to sort of announce a season. So this is the first podcast in the 2018 season of Review the Future. We're going to try to make as many as we can between now, which is early February and uh, June of this year. So you can expect some more podcasts from us in that time frame. Uh, And then after that, we're going to probably go dark for about six months and come back to you in 2019. So I just wanted to let you know that that's going to happen. One other thing is that uh, you may have noticed we experimented a bit last year with doing um, sort of more loosely structured episodes. We were calling them Express, and we were actually pulling them out of our normal numbering. Uh, Our experiment there was to see if People like those kind of episodes, and we basically found that they did.
1: We're going to lean into those discussion episodes because they are easier to put out faster, and we want to bring you actual content, which we haven't been doing a good job of recently. Right, right. So that's why we're going that route. Although today's episode is something a bit different. We have a guest. We've got a return guest coming to talk about his new book. And I just want to frame it a little bit to say that the book isn't directly about the future, so you might first ask, why are we... Uh, discussing this book at all. But I do think it'll be interesting to our listeners. And if you hang on to the second half of the episode, it does get weird and futury eventually.
0: All right. Thanks very much for listening. Uh, here we go.
1: Today, we are once again joined by Robin Hansen, professor of economics at George Mason University. Uh, he has a new book out uh, co-authored with Kevin Simler, and it's called The Elephant in the Brain, Hidden Motives in Everyday Life. Robin, welcome back to the show.
2: It's great to be back.
1: So first, just to
0: start out, um, uh, just for those listeners who haven't heard of this book yet or haven't seen it, haven't read it yet, what is the basic argument of the book? Like, just simply put, what's the thesis of The Elephant in the Brain?
2: The elephant in the room is the thing we all know is there that we don't want to talk about. The elephant in the brain is the part of our minds that we all know is there that we don't want to talk about which is that our motives are more selfish than we like to admit. So all through our lives, uh, whenever we do things like go to school, go to the doctor, vote, we tell ourselves a reason. Why are we doing that? And we usually try to tell ourselves and other people a reason that sounds okay or, or makes us sound like good people. And uh, we tend to believe these explanations in a lot of areas and the people who research these topics, uh, people who study education or medicine or politics, they tend to focus on these reasons we give as if they were our main reasons. And the claim of the book is that's wrong. Um, Consistently through a lot of areas in life, uh, the reasons we give are not our main reasons. Our main reasons are other reasons that make sense, they're reasonable reasons to have, but they're a bit more selfish and they're less the sort of thing we want to admit And that's the elephant in the brain, uh, that we are just wrong about our motives in a lot of areas of life, and that this matters a lot for analyzing and understanding the world we're in and how to make it better.
1: Now, obviously, everybody understands that selfishness is common among people. So we're all somewhat aware that we have some selfish motives. But your book argues that we actually actively deceive ourselves and also do it on on a larger scale collectively. Can you kind of explain how that works?
2: Yeah. that um, When we think about why we go to school, we might say we're selfish and we're going to school for ourselves and that we will try to uh, you know, get a b- better job in the future if we go to school and, and improve ourselves. So from that point of view, we might certainly think of it as selfish rather than generous and altruistic to other people. But it's still a relatively high-minded motive. It's not as low as you can go. Uh, actually, Uh, We're more interested in going to school, uh, we suggest in the book, um, to impress people, to show off. That is, we're not actually learning very much that's useful. Uh, We are getting better jobs, but as a result of showing off, not so much as a result of learning. But that doesn't sound as good as a motive. It actually still sounds a little better to say you're going to school to learn, because a world where everybody went to school to learn sounds like a better world. I mean, people are out there learning, and, and they know more. And then when they do things, they are more expert. And even if they're each doing it for selfish reasons, that still sounds like an okay world. world where everybody goes to school just to show off who they are and they aren't really any better at the end they just sort themselves by who's better those are also being selfish but it's not as pretty a world it's not as world what we would like to uh admit to or or present and then we all kind of have a common interest in pretending this way that is some kinds of things where i you know pretend to have one motive um i might have a rival who is willing to take me down I might be, you know, pursuing a woman and and claiming that I'm doing something in her interest and somebody else will say, he's not doing that in your interest. He's doing that in his own interest. And in cases like that, uh, claims that some people have high motives are often met by criticism and exposure from other rivals saying that, no, you don't really have such high motives. But when we all want to pretend the same thing, then there's a lot fewer critics out there to point it out. And then we all end up agreeing with each other that we're all high-minded people all doing this relatively noble thing.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So just for our own sake, I think I'm going to try to sort of pitch back to you what the idea is, and maybe you can correct me where I'm not getting it. Does that make sense? Um, so I think it sounds like we're saying that because in our daily lives, we are being judged by our peers, we need to like look good to those people. We need to make sure that the things we do appear like you say, like, they're from a a better world than they really are. So we want to emphasize the good parts of our motives and de-emphasize or hide the bad parts. And one of the really interesting things that the book said uh, that you kind of got to hear, but I want to hit hard, is we deceive ourselves about these bad things. And the argument seems to be primarily we do that in order to better deceive others.
2: Right. Now, we are somewhat agnostic in the book about the degree of self deception or conscious awareness because it really varies a lot from topic to topic and person to person. Each of you has an area of life that is most precious to you. Uh, if you're a teacher, perhaps, uh, then education is precious to you. And uh, you might be willing to be cynical about politics or about research or about medicine, but you're not much less willing to be cynical about education. And so you'll be. More, you know, less willing to admit that you and other people are teaching or learning for low motives because that's precious to you. But in other people's areas, you'll be willing to admit that, you know, you go to the doctor or vote or for the other's more low motives because that's not central to your identity. That's not precious to you. So, because of that, you know, this really varies from person to person. Most people who go to school are actually relatively willing <laughs> to be cynical, in private at least, about why they're going to school. Uh, but you know, people giving graduation speeches, or politicians arguing for funding, or even education uh, researchers—they're much less willing to be cynical there, because it's more precious to them.
0: Right, right. The person I was thinking of is the the deans of schools or the people who run schools and fundraise on their behalf. They seem like the least willing to be cynical about the motives of the
2: school. At least openly, not open privately at a bar. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Just, just a few and your friends, then then they might be more willing to be open. So. That, that's why it's complicated in terms of are, are we self-deceived or are we just lying to others and it, it's really a, a long continuum in between.
1: And as you mentioned earlier, when there's a lot of buy-in to an institution, when we all collectively attend school and agree that school and education is a good idea, there's nobody really to call bullshit or point out the hypocrisy on in a large scale like they would in your smaller example of, of someone who's, say, like mistreating someone they're dating.
2: Well, not no one, but the people who would criticize it have too low a status to be heard. Got it. Okay. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure that if you go talk to the median person out there who did not graduate from high school, and you talk to them about you know the value of school, you'll probably get a number of relatively cynical descriptions. <laughs> it's less precious to them. But for those of us uh, who did well in school and for whom that's a big part of our uh, sale to the rest of the world about why we're good, uh, we're much less willing to admit that.
1: Got it. So why don't we make this concrete uh, by quickly going through, maybe not in detail yet, but talking about some of the examples. Obviously, you've already mentioned education. It's often described of you in your blog that you like to say that X is not about Y, that say one thing that we think is about something is really about another thing. And that's a big part of what this book is. So here you're saying education's less about uh, teaching people new knowledge and more about uh, showing off in various ways and maybe getting a, a badge that you've completed something. Uh, so let's go through some of the others, um, so for example, uh, medicine is one that you talk about a lot in the book. Um, can maybe now, get- let's,
2: let's just be clear about the overall method here. So uh, I don't want people to just be accepting you or me at our word here. Of course. So uh, the method here is that in each area of life, including education and medicine, there's a usual story about what, what we're doing and why, and then we collect a bunch of puzzles uh, things that don't make sense from the point of view of that usual story and when we have enough of these puzzles then we offer an alternative story a, a different motive than our usual motive and You know suggest that that alternative story makes a lot more sense of most of these puzzles it's, it's rather than making one ad hoc Excuse me rather than making one ad hoc explanation for each puzzle We take a whole set of puzzles and ask what one simple assumption could we make that would explain as many of these puzzles all at once. And that's the way in which we're arguing for these alternative motives. We're saying they make sense of the details of our behavior in a way that the usual story doesn't.
1: I think that's a good clarifying way to frame it. So maybe even going back to education, what's the-
2: Right, we haven't finished education because we've just made a claim about education, but I didn't show you. So my colleague Brian Kaplan at the moment has a book called The Case Against Education and our chapter on education is mostly you know a condensation and summary of that book. So I recommend going to that book. but. Key points about education are that most of us who go to school, uh, we don't actually remember very much of what we supposedly learned. And most of what we do remember uh, isn't very useful. Yet people who learn or once learned and forgot these stuff do get paid more. So uh, bartenders who uh, went to college get paid more than bartenders who just went to high school. I went to Stanford University for a while without bothering to register or apply by just walking over and sitting in on classes. Nobody tries to stop you from that. In fact, professors will mostly be flattered that you want to be there. I even asked one of my professors for a letter of recommendation, which they gave me on the basis of just sitting in on their class, which is a puzzle. If you know you can get most of the value from a top college by just walking in and sitting down without applying, why don't most people do that If the if schools are about learning? It makes a lot more sense if school is about credentialing uh, people are not interested in just learning if they can't get the credential. Turns out, not only do people get paid more for uh, getting one more year of high school, or another year of college, the last year of either high school or college uh, is worth three times as much as any of the other years. But you don't learn three times as much in the last year of high school or college. Uh, yeah, nevertheless, you get paid three times as much. People get paid more for going to college and high school, uh, but nations as a whole don't get paid remotely as much if more of their citizens go to school. So there's a really big disconnect of the amount by which the income of a nation goes up when the nation on average gets one more year of school is far less than the amount by which an individual gets more money if they get another year of school. So all of these are puzzles that make less sense from the usual point of view that school is about learning useful things that uh, go to school and you learn them and then you have a credential that shows you learn them and employers like students who've learned these things and so they hire ones who know. But these things make a lot more sense if we say school is about showing off. School is less about creating a difference in a student and more about showing what differences were already there. And you can show that you are better by getting more years of school and by getting degrees that you don't use. And that makes a sense of a lot of these details.
0: Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about like the kinds of things you're showing when you, let's say, earn a a bachelor's degree from a college, right?
2: Right. Now t- you know, for this to make sense, you have to be showing something at school that you couldn't show in twenty minutes somewhere else. <laughs> right. Right. So right, you, exactly. know, you don't need school to show you're tall. You show you tall. <laughs> <laughs> right. We we can find out you're tall really fast, so there's no point in going I mean, through we a don't, long process.
0: We don't have a lot of height academies, maybe right. surprisingly. Oh, uh, we right? don't
2: even need to show, yeah. you know, go to school to show you have smooth skin or a pleasant mm-hmm. you know, sounding voice. There's a lot of things that are good in people that we can see really quickly, and so we don't need a long process to show it. And plausibly, intelligence is actually one of those things. It's not actually that hard in a short time, even a one-day interaction with people, to show that you're pretty smart. So school really can't be only about showing that you're smart. But what worker places need is someone who's willing to uh, show up for work, uh, not only on the first day, but days afterwards. Continue to show up regularly uh, to do tasks that vary in their interestingness, all the way down to pretty boring. uh, To take ambiguous instructions and uh, figure out what they mean, and to take assignments where uh, the what the deadline for what you're supposed to do is weeks or even months away, and actually do them uh, and by that deadline. And by going to school, you do show a lot of these things that you can work out. You know the usual. A modern workplace scenario of being given complicated, ambiguous instructions, complicated tasks that are mildly boring with, with a fair bit of stress involved, and systematically and consistently just do them and get them done. We could call that conscientiousness. We can call that conformity. We can call it different things from an abstract point of view. But concretely, you can't show those things in a one-hour IQ test or even in a one-day meeting Uh, You do need to consistently do something for several years in order to show that if we were to hire you, you would stick around for several years.
1: Now, it seems like there's a couple different reactions you could have to learning this, right? Assuming that uh, people accept this point of view, which is, okay, so school is not about the loftier learning thing. So you could think, oh no, this is a huge problem. We need to make school more about actually learning. But then at the same time, uh, showing off this badge to employers is actually a pretty useful function. It may not be the one people talk about the most or or the n- prettiest sounding one, but once you sort of uncover it and explain that that is a good way to show that you're someone who could do things in the workplace, it actually seems to serve a purpose uh, that we might not have been aware of.
2: Well, our claim in all of these areas is that our behavior makes sense in terms of our actual motives. Our actual motives are reasonable motives. They are plausible, reasonable things for a social creature like ourselves to want to do. And the behavior is effectively achieving these things that we want to achieve. So from an individual point of view, our book isn't much of a reason to deviate from existing behavior. Uh, If you want to get a good job, you need to go to school. Deciding not to go to school will hurt you personally. Uh, The difference may come when we are looking at the overall social world and asking, could we all be better off together if we somehow moved or switched to a new equilibrium? We can't do that one by one individually, but we might be able to do it together. So when policy analysts uh, think about our institutions and our various policies, they're supposed to be thinking in these larger terms about the overall benefits or costs of various things we're doing and how our collective behavior ends up helping us or hurting us all. When people think of school as learning useful things, then they think uh, we should be subsidizing school. It's good if everybody gets paid to go to school. If there are people out there who can't afford to learn useful things, then for the rest of their life, they can't be very useful and they won't get paid much. And then we all suffer by them not being so useful. Uh, and But if we subsidize and make sure everybody gets lots of school, then they, we'll all know a lot and we'll all be very useful and that'll be great. And that's been the argument for subsidizing school. If, in fact, we're not learning much at school, then that whole argument falls apart. And so maybe we should each go to as much school as we can afford, but maybe we shouldn't be subsidizing it and making sure everybody can get a lot because maybe that's not so good.
1: But why not subsidize it for the other purpose of creating a a, uh, trustworthy badge for employers to know that this is a good worker?
0: Right, and and, and extending the ability to get work to people who wouldn't otherwise have the economic means to go to school.
2: Well, uh, then you want to start thinking about what kind of different alternatives could substitute. So when in the past, very few people went to school. uh, They did still acquire workplace discipline and habits. They just acquired them at work. So you have to ask, if people went to less school and instead started work sooner, would they learn less on net about how to handle the workplace, and would they show less about their ability to work?
0: Well, I I definitely think they would um, not learn less about work, but I'm worried that they would have less uh, badges with which to show what they've learned to prospective employers, right?
2: Well, so I think part of the issue is the standardization of school versus work. So if you say, well, if, let's just everybody go work and then we'll see what jobs they did. And then we'll evaluate those for their ability to do future jobs. And the problem with that might be jobs vary so much. It's hard to judge. Oh, you know, if you did well in one job, is that just cause it's an easy job? What does that tell you about your ability to do other jobs? So what happens at school is we've standardized school more. And because school is more standardized, then we can more judge that if you went to a school and did a certain grade in English or a certain grade in math. That's comparable to somebody else getting a similar grade in English or math somewhere else. And therefore, we can interpret what you did and compare. And so in order for work to serve the function that school does now, it would perhaps need to be more standardized. Although note, we do tolerate quite a lot of unstandard variation in school. True. You know, going to an inner city school and getting an A just does not mean the same thing as going to a rich suburban school and getting an A. And so we, in fact, hinder people's ability to show that they are better by um, making school non-standard.
0: Yeah, 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 that's absolutely true. I mean, college admission departments know this, they rank every high school relative to each other, and then that affects, you know, their criteria and things like that. So yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's already inequality uh, in the existing system. Um, it's just interesting, because I think what John is trying to get at, and what I've been thinking about with this is, this is such an interesting idea. And it's, um, it's something that, feels intuitive in a certain way uh, because it it does answer all these nagging questions about why the institutions in our life consistently state goals that feel like somehow different from what they're doing. Um, but it it was unclear to me on reading it whether these were things that we should actually try to fix or whether they're just things that, uh, whether it just explains better why we've gotten stuck in these particular sort of places. um, As you you
2: mentioned, I've been blogging on this X is not about Y theme for a while. Yeah. And uh, that has had a limited impact, let's say. (laughs) And (laughs) we thought thought it was important to try to write a book that could summarize this whole point of view in one package. And to do that well, it needs to focus on making one main claim and, and getting it right. And so, you know, hopefully, we are opening up a whole new area of thinking. And Once that's opened up, we can have lots of people exploring that and and going a lot farther with it. But we have to make this first step of making the the first basic claim uh, that the rest of this depends on and trying to make it clear and and clean and persuasive. So the book is focused mainly on convincing you that in fact, uh, we just have uh, hidden motives all through our lives, all over the place. It's it's not just a rare thing. Because I've been concerned... Like when like when my colleague Brian Kaplan writes about education, and he says education isn't about learning, it's more about signaling, uh, I show, i.e. showing off. If you're an education researcher and you've been studying education all your life, and all your life you've been assuming that education is about learning the material, even if Brian offers you a lot of persuasive evidence, still, he's just saying something really weird. And your prior is pretty strong, that that, that just can't be right. And in the end, you mostly go with your prior. And so it's hard to persuade anybody that in one area, things are really weird. If I can tell you that they're really weird in 10 areas, because our book goes through 10 different areas of life, then you're more willing to believe they're weird in each area, that there's a large, consistent pattern here. So that was the main message of this book, is not just that maybe we could be wrong about our motives, or maybe that rarely sometimes we are wrong about our motives. The message is we are wrong about our motives a lot all over the place in a lot of big, important areas.
0: Yeah, so going along with that idea, let's pull up, because we don't have time to do 10 uh, on the podcast table, but let's pull up another vertical stack of society, uh, another category to look into where there's a puzzle and, and what uh, this theory might do to explain
1: what's going on.
2: I'll let you guys pick your favorite areas.
1: How about medicine? Because I know that's one of the more surprising ones that, that you focus on.
2: Right now, medicine is probably the area that um, the median reader will be the most surprised about, or therefore the most resistant to uh, believing our conclusions. And so we do have to mention we go through a lot of other areas where people will find it more plausible than in medicine, uh, just to be clear, Uh, like in body language and laughter and a number of other uh, areas where I don't think we get very much resistance at all. But nevertheless, medicine is surprising. So uh, what's the usual story about medicine we have to start with? The usual story is uh, people get sick and uh, there are experts doctors who uh, can help you get well these experts are expensive and uh, therefore you need a lot of money to pay for these medicines and the, and these experts c- uh, could be wrong or or right and it's hard to tell so you need some process to evaluate them and, and to set quality control and regulate them etc so that's the usual story about medicine that we're just trying to get healthy and there's a whole bunch of things that just don't make much sense from the point of view of this usual story and probably the biggest one uh, is just the fact there's very little correlation between people and places that get more medicine and the ones that are healthier. Uh, more medicine in terms of more doctor visits or more money spent, however you want to measure it. Um, we we have data on geographic variation, like uh, all the different counties in the United States, some of which just give do a lot more medicine than others. Uh, we also have variation across nations. Uh, we also have data on randomized experiments where some people were just given higher prices for medicine, other people were given lower prices. The ones who were given lower prices uh, got more. And consistently across these various kinds of data, we find that the people who get more medicine are just not healthier. Um, now, of course, there's always a lot of variation and a lot of data. Uh, and so there's a lot of you know things that go up and down here or there. But this is the consistent overall trend, which has to be kind of surprising. <laughs> Because in the U.S., we spend 18% of GDP on medicine, and plausibly from the point of view that we're trying to help health. Uh, Another puzzle is that we know a lot of things that actually do correlate with health. A lot of big effects correlate with health. We know that exercise and clean air and uh, religion and having friends and uh, having higher social status and diet and sleep, there's a lot of things that have strong correlations with medicine, even smoking and alcohol. Uh, And... When you try to talk to people about you know changing their behavior or pushing for various policies on the basis of these other big effects on health you find people are really not interested they are bored they they just can't be bothered to really think much about or to put much energy into promoting health through all these other channels but as soon as you start talking about medicine they are with you they are there they are concerned they really pay close attention and they are uh, have high emotional investment you know, that's puzzling. If, if it was about health, they'd be really all over all these other things that have a lot more effect on health. Uh, in addition, people are surprisingly disinterested in information about the quality of medicine. You know, you might think if they knew that it was hard to judge quality and, and that you know some things that seem to help you could really hurt you, vice versa, they would really pay a lot of attention to uh, quality control. They would be interested in statistical studies or randomized experiments or anything they could get to figure out which of the stuff actually works. But they are not. In fact, uh, we've done people have done studies where they give people information, say about uh, say people who are about to undergo a particular kind of surgery. They say, "Did you know that a lot of people die from the surgery? Did you know that we can tell you which local hospitals and which local doctors uh, do people die more often under when they do the surgery?" And it turns out that people about to undergo surgery just do not want that information, <laughs> and if you give it to them, they don't act on it. And so people are uh, surprisingly uninterested in information about the quality of medicine. Uh, It also turns out that there's a keeping up with the Joneses effect with medicine. Uh, If you think it was just spending money to get healthy, then the more money you have, the more you might spend. But it turns out how much your neighbors spend on medicine affects a lot of how much you spend. Uh, Holding constant how much money you make, the more your neighbors spend, the more you spend. But why would you do that if it was just about getting healthy?
0: Right, Especially if more health care doesn't actually result in more health, right? I mean <laughs> yes exactly. yeah yeah that 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 um, that seems like a genuine puzzle. So let's uh, look at it from the other side. what What could be causing us to, you know use health to show off or or otherwise uh, show a baser
2: motive? So uh, when a child scrapes their knee, uh, they might come crying to a parent and the parent might kiss the boo-boo and the child might be comforted. I think we're all pretty clear and the child is even pretty clear that's not a medical process (laughs) Uh, they're not actually you know giving some sort of healing medicine with the kiss Uh, but nevertheless they still feel comforted because somebody took the time and energy to show they cared and so our basic hypothesis about medicine is that we are using it to show that we care about other people that is when we push for them to go to medicine and we subsidize it and help them pay pay for their medicine, then we show them that we care. And we let other people push about us and show that they are willing to help us get medicine in order to let everybody see that there are people who care about us. Um, an analogy is, say, Valentine's chocolate. So Valentine's Day was just a few days ago. And uh, many people have a loved one that they tried to show that they cared about on Valentine's Day. And one of the ways they did that is to buy them chocolates. Now, when you think about buying your Valentine some chocolate, do you ask, how hungry are they when you decide (laughs) how much chocolate to buy? Uh, You know, because chocolate is food, and you might think the purpose of food is is to satisfy hunger and to give you nutrition. But people don't really pay much attention to how hungry someone is or how much nutrition they need or what kinds when they buy them Valentine's chocolate. Um, When you choose how much to spend, you are more deciding how much do I need to spend in order to spend more than somebody who doesn't care as much as I do. And when you think about what kind of chocolate to buy, what quality of chocolate to buy, or what signals of quality your chocolate sends, we mostly pay attention to common shared signals. If I happen to privately think that a certain kind of chocolate is really great, but I don't think anybody else believes that or knows about that, That doesn't influence my choice very much. And if they privately think that a certain kind of chocolate is great, but they don't think uh, that you knew about that or anybody else knew about it, that also doesn't influence their decision. They're mostly looking for common signals about quality in order to decide how much credit to give you for showing that you care. So the story is that medicine is a lot like this. The amount of medicine we give each other isn't tied to how much we need, it's tied to how much we need to spend to show that we care, to distinguish ourselves from someone who doesn't care as much as we do. And the qualities of medicine we give, uh, we want to just give medicine that's of the commonly accepted quality. Uh, Whatever everybody says is the right sort of medicine, well, that's the kind of medicine we want to give and take because we're less interested in our private signals about what's really effective and more interested in just the credit we get and give about who cares how much.
1: Okay, and and just to be clear here, you're not saying that um, the hidden motive is the only motive, right? Obviously, the, the stated motive of getting better from medicine and being becoming healthier is got to explain at least some of what we do. So the, the, these two motives exist alongside each other in some proportion. Is there any way to, to quantify which one is more important or, or are they relatively equally important?
2: Right, so the first thing it was to admit is almost any large area of life like medicine or school encompasses an enormous wide range of people, an enormous wide range of contexts, and therefore obviously an enormously wide range of motives are relevant. Uh, It's not just one or two, it's thousands. So all we can really talk about is what are the main motives? What are the most important motives? And those will shape the institutions. So these institutions have a lot of details about them, and those will be shaped by whatever are the strongest motives we have. So the question is, what are the main motives? now? The key point is that uh, the usual motive has to be there in some substantial degree or else it doesn't really work as an excuse. If you think about the excuse, the dog ate my homework, that only can work in a world where you have a dog (laughs) and a dog of the type that sometimes eats homework. Then it's a plausible excuse because then it might have actually happened. And similarly, I went to the doctor to get well, makes sense as an excuse because of course it is part of our motives. It is relevant and it's the sort of thing that can happen and that does happen. It's just not as big a part as we like to admit. And how do we figure out how large a part is? That's, again, when we go back to these institutions and the details, and we ask, well, which of these motives is driving the details?
0: I find this super interesting. I want to try to push it into a sort of a futury question, because I think our audience might appreciate that. Medicine is a particularly interesting one to me, because for most of human history, medicine's been basically ineffective, right? I mean,
2: We haven't
0: haven't had very good medicine for most of our history, but uh, recently medicine started to get a little bit better, and in the future we could imagine it might get considerably better. So do you foresee that this changes at all in a future world where treatments are just more effective than they are now?
2: Well, we are in that future world. Mm
0: -hmm. To some extent. Where
2: treatments are more effective. Mm -hmm. And so we can say that, you know, obviously people benefit overall because of that. Uh, but that still may not drive the actual detailed features of the institutions. That is, uh, in our world today, there are some kinds of medicine that some people get more of than other people, and there are other kinds of medicine that basically everybody gets. Uh, This data I was talking about, where you say there's very little relationship between uh, medicine and health, that's data about the kind of medicine that some people get that other people don't. When you're talking about the kind of medicine that everybody gets, well, then you can't see any variation there, so you can't see a correlation. So the thing we know is that the medicine that varies a lot between people, that medicine isn't very useful on average. There's relatively little benefit from that medicine. But that still leaves open the question about the medicine that we all get. The vaccines, the emergency treatment when you have a car accident, etc., well baby care, the kind of thing that basically everybody gets, that can be enormously valuable. There's a famous uh, experiment in medicine called the RAND Health Insurance Experiment, and this is one of the data points where some people got more medicine than others. They not only showed that people who got more medicine uh, weren't healthier, they also had some other interesting correlates of the extra medicine that some people got that other people didn't. So you might think that, for example, the extra medicine that some people get and other people don't is medicine that's more controversial, that's less clear, it's a good idea. If a doctor were to look at someone else's case, they'd say, well, that's not what I would do. Uh, you also might think that the extra medicine that some people get and other people don't is about relatively mild symptoms. You might think, well, when there's a really big, strong symptom, then of course, everybody's going to get that treatment. But if the symptoms are real, pretty mild, then some doctors might say, just skip it, wait, don't do anything, and others might do something, and then you would see that as part of the medicine that some people get and other people don't. However, what it turned out when they looked at uh, this data, they found that the extra medicine that some people got that other people didn't was just as appropriate when evaluated by other doctors. Uh, they didn't see it as more or less appropriate treatment. And they also didn't see it as more severe symptoms or conditions. Uh, the medicine everybody had in common plausibly could be more effective, but it isn't because doctors say, yes, of course, that's what you need. or And it isn't because, yes, of course, those are really strong, big, bad symptoms. Surely you have to do something about that.
1: You're making the case pretty well right now, but I mean, it's, it's impossible to make the case as well as you've made it in the book and people are going to have to read the book for that. So if we just kind of accept or ask our audience for the moment to accept this claim at face value that uh, medicine is greatly influenced by a desire to show that we care about other people, perhaps more so even than the desire to get better, then what does that suggest? Because again, one of your claims early on in the book is that um, our institutions are, quote, prodigiously wasteful because of... Uh, these hidden motives that nobody's talking about and that our institutional design could improve. So I know that uh, obviously your book itself is just trying to make this case and and it's maybe too much to ask of your book itself to, to posit lots of solutions. But since we have you here in person, I'd love to just hear some off the cuff ideas of how we might improve medicine based on knowing this.
2: Well, um, you know, the first cut would be stop subsidizing it so much just as with education. It's, You know, when you think medicine is very valuable and and effective, and you think when people are sick and they don't get well, then that cuts into their productivity and we all suffer because of that, then you think, well, we really need to make sure everybody gets enough medicine. And so you make sure it's strongly subsidized. Um, When it's not actually that effective, then the argument for subsidies is much weaker. It's much less clear that we should be pushing more of it uh, compared to all the other things we might do. If we look at sort of the whole range of all the things we're doing to showing off you might say well looks it looks like we're spending a pretty large fraction of all our energies to show off in one way or another it's not really clear we can do much more or less showing off overall maybe the real thing is about which kinds of ways we show off so you could say the world could be better or worse if we show off in ways that are more helpful to others so once upon a time at least people at least men, showed off in physical strength and uh, military virtues. They fought, uh, not only individually, but in large armies, and uh, that was impressive, and we gained respect from people by seeing how well they could fight. And at the individual level, it made sense to fight well in a world where everybody else was fighting well, because otherwise you won't look very impressive and nobody will like you. But the more we move to a world where you show off through music or research or... Or writing uh, maybe the less damage there is <laughs> through all this conflict and that's a better thing and so having less war and, and violence it sounds good as a way to to show off and you might also think we should look for ways that we show off that have big what we call externalities as economists ways they benefit lots of other people so charity if pe- the more people show off via charity uh, then the more problems get solved uh, as opposed to showing off by having the biggest yacht say or the biggest starship, uh, and also innovation. It, it seems that we can make a strong case that there's just not enough innovation. People who invent just don't get paid enough to compensate them for their efforts. And so the more we could celebrate innovation, the more we could all be better off for that. So that's another way that we could be better. But I actually think um, there's a, a, a another issue that's even more important than the issues I've just mentioned. And that's how well-informed knowledgeable is the audience we're trying to impress so when i try to impress you by helping you get medicine i'm doing things that seem like they will make you healthy but since you don't really know what makes you healthy and i don't really know um, and the audience i'm impressing doesn't really know i don't really need to pay much attention to how effective it is and similarly with uh, charity I might wanna show you how caring I am by donating a lot to a charity, but I only really need to donate to a charity that seems on the surface to be helpful. If the audience I'm impressing doesn't really know what's helpful, then uh, I will be just as effective impressing them with a thing that only seems effective even compared to a thing that actually is effective. So all over these areas of our lives, uh, we are trying to be impressive. We are trying to do things that look good to our audiences, but the less our audience knows, the more we should just focus on surface, quick uh, evaluations of things and doing the things that look on a first glance to be good or useful and not so much on what actually is. So this suggests that there are really large gains to making the world overall have better audiences. Now, this could come from just making everybody more knowledgeable about you know, the consequence of our actions, uh, everybody making everybody more skeptical, perhaps, about what they can believe it uh, could also come from letting us focus more on a smaller number of things we do that get evaluated rather than you know, making 20 tweets a day. Each of which gets so many retweets. <laughs> Maybe you write one book every 10 years <laughs> and then uh, it gets a lot more careful scrutiny and then people are better able to evaluate it. Uh, we also might just try to focus on having things evaluated more by the people who know more about them rather than having evaluating things on their mass popularity. Uh, mass popularity is making things be evaluated by the ordinary average person on whatever topic this is. And for most topics, they don't really know much.
0: Yeah. Yeah. One of the most interesting parts of your book to me was the section on charity, because it has a kind of case study of some people who are, I think, trying to do what you're talking about, making a more informed audience, or somehow connecting the uh, motive and charity to, sh- to show off and give to a well-known uh, charity that everybody accepts is good with um, actually finding one that's effective. I'm talking about the uh, effective altruism movement. Um, do you want to go over some of what you covered in the book about that?
2: Well, that's just a you know case study because there's this group of people who are trying self-consciously to um, do the thing we say we are trying to do. Right. And their method is to actually put more work into figuring out what's effective and creating a community within which they reward each other and praise each other for doing the things that are actually more effective. Uh, and that serves as a contrast to the rest of the world, uh, which is doing less of that. Now, uh, the, the question is, you know, can this last? And how far could this grow? Uh, you know, to the extent they only care about their own opinions, then an elite group of people can separate themselves and just You know, within that world, raise their standards and do better. Um, But what effect can they have on the larger world Uh, might be the harder question.
0: Well, one thing that I think is interesting about them is that they, uh, part of their strategy is once they do this sort of internal work and decide what they think, according to their criteria, is the most effective thing, they also do a significant amount of publicizing um, and sort of raising the status, or at least attempting to raise the status of those organizations that, that, in fact, do well effectively.
2: Right. But now we get to the key hard question of how you create experts mm-hmm. uh, and what what, is it, what what is it to have credi- credible expertise. Um, so if this group of people just says, uh, we are smarter and we are paying more attention and we think these are better charities, and that's all they say, the question is, can the rest of the world believe them? Uh, Because, of course, that's easy to say, and if anybody can get away with saying that, maybe lots of other people get away with saying that. And in fact, we do see that all the time. That Mm is, we we see lots of people with respect to politics saying, we have studied this political question, we know better than the average person, and we advocate X. So uh, you should advocate X too. But uh, since that's so easy to say, we've got lots of groups advocating a lot of contradictory things, each of whom says, we've studied this question in more detail, and we think this is the better thing to do. So uh, that doesn't work if you merely make the claim if other people would be willing to make contrary claims which is pretty clear is true in charity mm-hmm. so the question comes down to creating some process to evaluate things such that other people can trust your evaluations and this is why i was initially excited about the the first er- efforts within the effective altruism movement to create neutral uh evaluation of charity mm-hmm. uh, with respect using very simple uh, easy to check criteria Uh, So today we have uh, bond rating agencies. There are a number of agencies that rate rate various kinds of investments, Mm -hmm. uh, particularly bonds. And they use similar methods. And uh, you can go then mildly at least trust these ratings to to correlate with the risk of these assets. And that's a good thing. That is, once you have an institution that uses some methods to evaluate it, if other people can trust those methods and, and check on them periodically to see they're roughly being followed, then we can all benefit by having... Uh, that sort of rating and we do this all over our lives not just in uh, bond ratings but uh, you know schools uh, have other you know groups that do tests and then if the test can be standardized then you can take the test and then the test can be uh, an evaluation of you that's being produced by this independent source and so uh, that was one of the first things that happened in the effective altruism movement was uh, this effort to create these independent evaluations of charities now first thing that happened is they found that uh, most charities just don't have <laughs> Any data they can go with so they pretty much can only rate a tiny fraction of charities that even bother to have the sort of data you would need to make the kind of evaluations they were doing within that set of charities you could find the better ones Um, now another problem was um, the amount of money willing to go to the better charities within this class of charities that can be evaluated is so large that they basically fund it all Mm. so there's really not much for you to learn (laughs) by looking at these uh, charity ratings because all the charities that are rated well by uh, these evaluations are all have plenty of money Uh, because the problem is that they really can't rate very many of all the charities because most don't even bother to do the minimal required to uh, give you some data that you could rate. And then a a final thing that's gone wrong or perhaps you might say is that the organization that started out to do these ratings, uh, GiveWell, has mostly moved on to other things. while they're continuing to do these ratings, that's not where their heart and energy is at. Uh, they're more trying to decide where to give the money based on their own personal judgment, which is fine from their point of view, but it, it doesn't serve as much this rating function that the rest of us could use to judge what should we do with our money.
1: Well, I, I think that that's sort of an important point that generalizes maybe to all of these areas, right? Which is that um, having, I mean, you mentioned that there are ratings of in education, but obviously those could be tailored better probably but having good standardized ratings from independent bodies um, is obviously how you get the kind of information that lets you know if any of these institutions are doing what they say they're trying to do but of course if their incentives are not to actually do those things then they are not incentivized to keep that those records in the first place
2: like right so that gets us to the key hard problem is how large of a community of customers are there that actually want these ratings So for effective altruism, it's still a really tiny fraction of all the people who give to charity are paying attention to effective altruism kind of ratings. And so, of course, most charities have relatively little interest in uh, producing ratings that they would listen to. Uh, Similarly, uh, you could say that we could rate schools and programs on how much you actually learn that's useful on a job, um, but we don't. And few people are interested in that, which is why those things are not produced. Similarly, you could say we could rate um, medical systems and coverage by how well they actually improve your health. But of course, uh, we we really don't do that either. And so um, you know, there's little demand for it. And uh, what demand there is can't be satisfied because there isn't much somebody satisfying the demand. Mm-hmm. So we really come back to a, at a very basic level, you can ask the question, how can we do better in all these areas? And that question is usually framed well, assuming that we actually want the things we say we want. <laughs> And there was some money and resources behind that preference. What could those money and resources do to achieve that end? Which is kind of denying the key phenomena here, which is that we say we want it, but we don't really want it as much as we say. What we're kind of pretending that we, the speaker in this conversation, we are one of the few exceptions of the people who really want it. And the problem is there's just a lot fewer of this purported us than we like to admit, which is why there's very little energy to do this.
0: Yeah, but that reminds me of something that I kept thinking as I was reading the book. Basically, I ascertained the point of the book as being right. Like I, I more or less bought it from the early chapters. But then as I was reading, I would find myself recoiling uh, from agreeing with any individual example, right? I'd read an example and I'd be like, "Well, sure. but no, but well, well, but" and I I and what helped me get through it and and um and understand it was to just consistently try to judge someone else first. exactly, And then, so every time I'd start to feel my brain go like, wait, but I don't, I'd be like, but so somebody else, does somebody else right. do this? And then I would be able to see it. And then I could exactly. think about myself and go, oh, I guess I probably do it too. I'm just hiding it from myself. And that that helped me get through the book. So if you're thinking about reading this book and you're listening, I'd say that's a yeah, strategy. And m- maybe own. I
2: should have said that before, but but I have you know, said it in another context that I, I think that the key method of analysis of the world should be just analyze everybody but you, right. everybody far away from you. Just ask, what's the typical thing going on elsewhere in other professions, in other jobs, in other industries, in other countries, in other genders? Just what's going on elsewhere? Look at the behavior of other people elsewhere and ask what things would best explain them. And then as the last possible step, when you get to yourself, you should probably just assume you're like everybody else <laughs> until you, unless you can find a really strong reason to think you're not which is kind of deflating, but it, but it, if you just put off that the last possible step and then you just say, am I different? And you say, what concrete evidence can I point to to say that I'm different? If you say, well, in my mind, it doesn't feel like I'm doing it <laughs> according to the reasons I attribute to them, that can't read why you're different because that's in fact what's going on in their heads too.
0: Right, you have to assume they also feel differently. <laughs> yeah,
2: they don't think they're doing it for these right. reasons. That's your best description of them, right? You know what they say they're doing and you know what they're really doing And you can see there's that difference in them and you're not quite sure how that plays out inside them how aware are they inside themselves that they really have these other reasons because you can't see entirely inside them you can see more inside yourself but that means you don't really have a reason to think you're different from them you just know that inside yourself you just when you look inside your own motives you don't see any of these hidden motives it doesn't you know looks like you could see everything really clear the elephant in your room isn't there you can see there's the couch over there and there's a table on the right side, a window and a door. You don't see an elephant. There's no elephant in your room.
0: Yeah. uh, For me anyway, what, what my experience was, was that I occasionally can come clean to myself about some of the cynical motives that I'm following, but not in any like systemic all the time sort of way. So that makes it in a way even harder to see the elephant because you can, every once in a while you let yourself see the trunk or something, but you there's still more so, of it there so,
2: so the, the really stark way to present this which i think is roughly right mm-hmm. is that you're not the king of your mind you're the slimy advisor to the side who says judicious choice sir
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> wonderful decision sir you're doing such a great job
0: oh yeah do you want to mention uh because this was such an interesting part of the book the uh the story about the people with the brain injury, I'm going to get it wrong, so you should do it. Do you know, Split what I'm brain Yes,
2: experiments. Um, so, I mean, this was back in the 1960s, so it's now half a century old, but it's still striking. Uh, they had people that, for whatever medical reason, they decided it was a good idea to cut the two halves of the brain so that they don't directly talk to each other. You have two halves of your brain. There's a relatively small connection between them. It's important, but it can be cut. And so in these split brain patients... There really are two brains in their head that are disconnected. Each brain controls one arm, one eye, one leg, one ear. And so they're really two different bodies that are attached, almost like a Siamese twin. You can talk to one of these brains in a way the other can't hear you. And that brain can then do something. Uh, So you can talk to one half of the brain and say, stand up. And then they will push their leg and their arm and try to stand up and the rest of their body will kind of go along. And you can then ask the other brain, why did you stand up? Now, the honest answer would have to be, I don't know. (laughs) I'm not connected to the other half of the body. It looks like it did it. Why don't you ask it? But that's not what our brains do. We make something up. We might have said, I wanted to get a Coke. So our brains are in this habit of making up explanations, if necessary, to explain whatever we're doing. And that's the conscious part of your mind. And it's main job is more to be the press secretary of your mind, it's not the president. Instead of making the decision, its job is to have a press conference and explain the decision to everybody else, even when it doesn't know. You, know, you might think, why do we have a press secretary answer questions about what the president does when the press secretary doesn't know what the president does? Because we say, well, we like it better that way. <laughs> press secretary does a better job of making up plausible explanations than the president themselves would. And uh, we'd rather hear these pleasant sounding, more coherent explanations. And that's what your conscious mind is. And so when you look in your conscious mind and say, I don't see any motives, you have to realize you're not the president. You're not the king. You are the press secretary. You're not supposed to know the real reasons when the real reasons are ugly. You're supposed to paint a better picture.
1: Now, I identify with all this in the sense that I, there are certainly motives I probably have that I don't want to broadcast because I would do badly in society if I did. And And I'm also not that aware of them, I'm sure. Um, but I also had the feeling, somewhat the opposite reaction sometimes when reading the book, where you would explain a hidden motive, and I would say, oh, yeah, that makes sense. This thing that, you know, bothered me, because it didn't make sense, now it makes sense. And, and and I didn't feel like, oh, that hidden motive is awful, and I need to get rid of it. I thought, oh, that hidden motive sounds really well adapted and actually useful, um, because again, so, so much of it comes back to showing off, right? You talk a lot about like, because right. like, we're social animals and we need to function with other humans and so we need to, to show off. And, and you talk about the, the primary motives uh, being, you know, status, sex, and and politics. Right.
2: And- now, so a lot of these things are things that we actually don't mind admitting that much in certain sense. So first of all, if you say, do you show off? Almost everybody will have to admit, yeah, I show off a bit. <laughs> And everybody shows off a bit. And we all kind of know that. And if you say, How bad is it to show off? You say, well, you know, I should show people my good side, and that's not such a terrible thing. But we humans going back a million years have had strong social norms against showing off. And so you you notice that when people show off, they try to do it indirectly. It's pretty rude and awkward to show off directly. So we try to just mention indirectly various nice things about ourselves. And that's our part of our social heritage and that comes because our ancestors had social norms and they were tried to enforce those norms and one of the you know things everybody was doing was trying to avoid being accused of violating norms and one of the norms was against showing off so we were trying to find ways to do everything we do so that we weren't be accused of violating this norm against showing off uh we, we also had norms against uh you know uh, threatening people against creating subgroup coalitions uh, against um you know being higher status than your friends and so uh even though all these things actually do happen uh we don't like to do it openly we have a norm against doing them openly so a lot of these hidden motives are really ways we avoid admitting to violating norms uh
1: well, that, that's that's why they have to be hidden, to some to some degree. Is- right. So
2: it's it's a different concept than than that they're just less noble or you know. You might say, well, I, I don't mind admitting to showing off. If you think to yourself, well, it's is it such a bad thing to show off? You might think, well, if I have good features, why shouldn't I let people know about them? I mean, it's not like you're terribly ashamed from letting people know about your good features, but you know, at some level, that we have this norm against showing off. You're not supposed to be too direct about showing off. And you kind of know that that's a social practice, and you need to adjust your behavior that way. Um, you know, so you can show off your wealth by wearing an expensive suit or arriving in an expensive car. You can't show off your wealth about by waving your bank statement around at people. Look how much money I have in the bank, or look at my stock portfolio. Look how big it is. <laughs> that's just you know gross, right? You have to indirectly show off your wealth. You're not even supposed to show off your education by saying, look, I have a PhD at this school. Where's your, where's your PhD from? But you're allowed to drop a lot of big words and use a big vocabulary. As long as it seems like you're using that word because it's useful in the context, you can pretend you weren't trying to show off. You were just using the word, even if it's a big, long word nobody else uses. Yeah. So again, the norm is about against showing off. And so a lot of these things are avoiding showing off. And so uh, even if you think, yeah, that makes sense you still might realize there's a norm against it and you'll have to be indirect.
1: Right. But I guess what I'm coming back to is it, obviously to, in order to function in everyday life, I need to conceal my showing off just like everybody else and, and do it in these indirect ways. And so on an individual level, that's absolutely larger claim that you make in the book that um, this is affecting our institutions and that it's uh it's, all this showing off is actually incredibly wasteful. And so I'm I'm just coming back to that as the part that I don't... While I actually, I think, accept most of the thesis of your book that we have these hidden motives and that we don't talk about them that openly and that they drive a lot of things. The the claim that early on that these things are so wasteful is more of a value judgment that you put in there early on. And that's what I'm sort of having trouble with because they seem so well-adapted um,
2: so, so at the individual level, we're roughly doing the right thing. You know, None of us is wasting very much at the individual level in terms of getting the things we individually, personally want. If there's a waste, it's in terms of our collective behavior. So it, by subsidizing school and subsidizing medicine, we're getting a lot more of it and it, we're not really being much better off because of that. But the reason we subsidize these things is that when we're playing the politics game, we also find it in our interest to promote the subsidy of these things. That is, it sounds like a good thing to uh, promote these things, and we want to be the sort of person who says things that sound good, and so we promote these things, even though they don't actually help. And there's an enormous amount of waste in our overall social equilibria, especially influenced by our political choices, because we subsidize things that we should be not subsidizing or even taxing, and not subsidizing things we should be, Uh, and... Our policy analysts are the people who should be telling us about this. And we have thousands of them. We have thousands of people out there whose job is to study school and medicine and voting, et cetera, and to think about our institutions and how to change them. And big claim is they are falling down on the job. Instead of acknowledging our real motives and thinking about how to address those, they are mostly parroting the claims we all make about our actual motives, the high-minded sounding motives. And then they're making recommendations as if those were our real motives. And that's going wrong.
1: I, I guess what I'm what I'm thinking is, and, and obviously, I agree that if you're going to design an institution, you have to have a correct model of what's going on just to start, right? You can't even sort of begin to do a good job unless you first know how the world works, which I think is, as I understand it, the main goal of your book is just to present this view right. and make sure people internalize it and absorb it, people who can make these decisions. Um but then, I, yeah, again, I'm just really interested in your thoughts on that next step, you know, and I mean, it seems like maybe in some cases we should split some of these institutions in two, you know, and, and not necessarily, you know, where we have an even better institution that serves the hidden motive that's really targeted at, at doing that well. Like, so, for example, like really outlandling people right. to show that they care and comfort each other. Uh, and then another institution that's really targeted at just making people get well, for example. So it's
2: it's going to be hard to have hidden institutions. We could have hidden parts of them, but uh, the way I'd like to say it is before people thought the design task was to find institutions and policies that would give people more of the things they say they want. And what we find now is that the real problem is to find variations on policies and institutions that allow people to continue to pretend to be trying to get things they pretend to want while actually giving them more of the things they actually want, but not forcing them to admit (laughs) that that's what they actually want. Now this is a harder design problem. Uh, All else equal, it's got more constraints and it will be harder to satisfy. And people won't be able to support your proposal because of its actual good features. They will have to make up other excuses to support it. That will make it harder to gain support for your proposal. Nevertheless, this is the sort of thing that should be possible Uh, If we have serious policy analysts who are paying attention to the real problem, and it's not obvious, you shouldn't be able to do better by these criteria. The problem is that it's not clear there's anybody who wants to solve this real problem. (laughs) That is, policy analysts, like all the rest of us, have hidden motives and real motives, and their real motive isn't actually to come up with better policies. And it's not clear whose motive that is to come up with a better policy. So, even though there is a way to think about the real problems and coming up with better policies, we have to wonder whose job is that exactly.
0: Yeah. And even if you somehow manage to get somebody to do that job, it also is unclear how you're going to be able to. Determine from the outside
2: right. how which can they interact one with others is, who, who do their part of the job of, of promoting it and advocating. It yeah. and, you know, how am I supposed <laughs> to know how to say, "Yay, I like this policy" because it was endorsed by this group who produced this analysis? You, know, you need a whole chain of people, all you know, doing things for one reason, but really promoting well, another <laughs> ima- reason behind the scene.
0: Yeah, just simply like imagine two institution designs. One is designed to uh, satisfy hidden motives, and the other one is designed to allow people to continue. Uh, pretending they're satisfying hidden motives while actually
2: satisfying. Actually, let me make this more dramatic. I, I have, over the last 20 years of my social science career, seen lots of institution proposals in medicine and education and in politics, all of which plausibly would have very large benefits for the world, uh, able to produce these things at higher you know, effectiveness, much lower costs. The problem has been it's very hard to find any interest in these things. And that, in some sense, was my initial... Uh, Posing problem. Uh, that's why I got into this. This that's why the, the topic of this book is the thing I most which I had le- wish I had learned at the beginning of my career.
0: Right, I right. Went
2: down many blind alleys, taking at pe- face value the problems people say they are trying to solve, identifying or f- my own solutions or reading about other people's solutions, getting excited and then being puzzled by a lack of interest, a enormous lack of interest in these things. And it's not just the generic lack of an in- interest in innovation because I used to be in physics and engineering and computer science. And i know that in those worlds innovation is hard and people nevertheless work hard at it and they come up with substantial innovations and the world's willing to pay a lot of costs to try those innovations out to hone them and to field them even when uh, they have to displace existing things there's enormous pain there's enormous disruption and the world still pays that cost of pain and disruption in order to identify and make changes that are better and in social science, it's just really different. There's just not that level of interest remotely that we find in these other areas.
0: Right, but what you're talking about is pitting an institutional design that uh, is more effective at stated motives at the cost of hidden motives versus uh, an institution design that's evolved to to serve hidden motives. What I, what I was suggesting is, uh, which I totally get, and that makes sense to me, but if you were to manage to design an institution that, did better at uh, stated motives while also allowing everyone involved to pretend that they're uh, serving their hidden motives. Well, uh, also so as to be a a palatable um, institution design, it would be incredibly difficult to tell that from an institution that just served the hidden motives like the one we have now, right? How would you like from the outside, how would you evaluate that? That seems like,
2: Well, so that's the general problem of any sort of expertise, but it's a harder problem of evaluating expertise on topics we don't want to admit, yeah, (laughs) or even the topics we want expertise on.
0: Right, right. You're Uh, hiding it. But you want want to
2: bring back this to the future. I mean, we should just step back and say, this problem has existed for thousands of years. Nevertheless, we've had progress. Mm -hmm. And so maybe we should just be downgrading the importance of progress that's intended (laughs) based on a conscious plan of making things better, and more just realize that the world has enormous variety and people just try all sorts of things, and they adopt them and keep them for all sorts of reasons. And then there's just this long, slow process by which the places that use the more effective institutions and methods end up winning compared to other places, and then those other places tend to copy them for all sorts of excuses and reasons. And there is really a long, slow process by which more effective institutions spread and get adopted. And that's not because any one person analyzes it and recommends it necessarily, and more just because there's enormous variety in the world and history is a long time.
1: Now, obviously, maybe your book can help. So, for example, like, you know, to what extent did you write this book to show off versus write this book to actually impact the world? Um, And I'm sure it's a mix of both. But uh, I mean, could you see uh, people becoming actually more educated about these ideas again i I think it would be too much to expect the average person to really face these hidden motives that seems sort of almost impossible by definition but as far as these elite people that design institutions that are used to thinking more abstractly um i know it's not it's very very difficult to for them to give up on their idealistic vision of what their institutions are about but do you have any optimism that books like yours and just, you know, growing knowledge of this stuff? In in the long
2: run, I'm enormously optimistic. I mean, just think about supernatural explanations or superstitious explanations. You know, thousands of years ago, these were just common explanations that most everybody accepted. And yet in our world, they're relatively rarely invoked and uh, not much respected when they are. At least for ordinary events in our lives, people are really quite reluctant to embrace superstitious explanations. explanations of of what happened and what they should be doing about it um and that's mainly because uh we all know a lot more and we all know that we all know a lot more we we just know that that the people around us will not take those explanations very seriously and so we know not to do that as well and that's just because uh we all know more so a world where more and more people knew more uh it would be harder to pretend otherwise and so a lot of these things, again, are excuses because it's plausible that somebody might at least believe it. The more it's implausible that anybody would believe it, the less it can work as an excuse. If nobody in your city owns a dog, the dog can't evade your homework.
1: Right. So yeah, these they're constrained by our understanding of reality, the kinds of pretexts and explanations people can give. So if if the understanding of reality is better, that limits our ability to to make up false stories about what we're doing
2: I'd still guess that you know going even far into the future people will continue to have a difference between the motives they pretend they have and the ones they really have just you know the the limit there'll be a limit on the plausible range of motives they can pretend to have
1: so let, let's stick with the looking at the future here as as we sort of like get towards the end of this podcast since that is what our podcast is supposed to be about um, so I uh, one thing it might be fun to speculate about um, is just sort of in, in the near future, um, obviously, you know, our, our basic emotives, you know, the really fundamental ones you talk about, like sex, status, and politics, those are probably not likely to change anytime soon. But the way we signal those things and, and the norms we use um, can shift, I think, with the times and pretty often, right? And and we have seen sure, and
2: technology can make a difference to some of these things. So I think one of the most interesting things that'll happen in the next few decades is automatic ways to read people's mood (laughs) and intentions through their face and voice uh, and tone of voice and things like that. Uh, So today we communicate with each other uh, things we say directly in our words, and we also communicate indirectly uh, again via the direction our eyes look, uh, the the kind of pacing of our voice, the. uh, the micro expressions in our face uh, even the pace of our walking all of these things communicate things about our moods and our intentions and but we can deny these things in our world today because it's just really hard to prove to anybody that you say flirted with someone by the way you moved your eyes when you said something uh, or that you were dominating them by disparaging them by the way that you you know said something it's just really hard to prove any of that stuff and so we can pretend like we uh, whatever we want about those things. The more it becomes possible to objectively measure uh, th- that sort of body language and voice language, uh, the harder it will be to deny those things, and that will change how we communicate through such things.
0: Yeah, that's super interesting. That was a really great part of the book. I'm glad you brought that up, because it's one of the places where it's more more easy to see sort of what you're talking about in a direct way, because, as you say, uh, body language is quite... Um, ambiguous in many cases, and uh, that ambiguity helps to sort of hide these things. But we have we did a podcast um, a while ago about uh, what happens when better uh, surveillance and algorithmic processing might uh, give you the ability to, you know, read somebody's heart rate and their pupil dilation and their uh, sweat levels and stuff from, you know, across the room and in a real time figure out exactly how nervous they are and, you know, whatever other... Like right. you talk about basically that our bodies are kind of leaky, and this is one of the better arguments for why these motives are actually hidden from our consciousness. Because you know we can be sort of subtly cynical and not be thinking that presently about our darker motive, but it will still leak out of our face or our body language. So one reason that we might be truly like fully deceiving ourselves to our mo- as to our motives might be to um, uh, prevent that leakage. But um, in a future of better sensors and better algorithms, it's possible that we can't prevent that leakage.
2: And So I think the big open question is whether we will create common knowledge of that. I can believe that we'll all sort of, if we were wearing our little glasses watching people, we'll automatically have our software you know, making these various judgments about each other. But in the explicit things we say to each other, will we acknowledge these things or will we pretend that we don't know about them the way we do now? I, <laughs> I mean, t- <laughs> uh, and that's the big open question, We'll because I can imagine a future where we can all read these things very well, but we still, on the surface, pretend we can't and pretend we don't know about it, because that's, what again, what we're doing now. And the main reason that works is because some of us don't actually know about it. There is a plausible deniability. It's only some of us who can read these cues now. And as long as it's only some of us who can read these future cues, the rest of us, we can all pretend we're not one of those people who can read the cues.
0: <laughs> right. Or even if you can read them, but there's some degree of error in the technology, you could still have some plausible deniability, you, so it right, might you could still say, be... "Well,
2: yes, that there's an indication here, but I won't rely on that. I right. couldn't rely on that. That's you know that would be rude, that would be impolite, that would be you know un- unsocial to to rely on these noisy cues." But you could also imagine a world where where the government just <laughs> you know is, has its official reader and its official reading everybody, and it just posts this little flag next to everybody about what the official reading of their mood is.
1: Right. Yeah. That. That's <laughs> my, my <laughs> That's a different world. My bet would be on on the one where we know the information but keep pretending. I mean, we even had a scene sort of like That's that.
2: More like our world, certainly.
1: Yeah, yeah. We we had a scene like that in our in our graphic novel where uh, a character is informed by their glasses that another character is probably lying. Yeah,
0: a percentage chance. But of like course, how much they're lying, right? they
1: don't immediately call the person out because that would be rude, right? You just sort of take that information into account right but it will be definitely interesting to see i mean if we got if it was common knowledge like you said if there's a flag planted next to everybody and we all knew all the time that you'd have to have pretty dramatic shifts in norms i would assume you'd have to be more permissive right I, well i
2: think what would actually happen is we'd adjust our behavior to move to the edge of detectability <laughs> and, and you, you already already see this, that is, when we are being ambiguous, we are moving right to the edge of what other people can tell. And so when they can see more, we have to be subtler. Uh, you can certainly see this in academic writings. You know, mm-hmm. Once upon a time, an academic could say something that was pretty obvious, but it wasn't obvious enough to call them on it. Now everybody's really careful about interpreting their words, and so now they have to be right in the edge of detectability just and say slight variations in this way before anybody can really tell what they're saying. And so, as long as there's there's an there's a boundary <laughs> between detectable and not detectable, and you can adjust your behavior to move your signals right to that edge, uh, then you can continue to be in a world that looks like our world, roughly, in the sense that uh, there's messages being ah. sent, but they can't be reliably detected, and they can't be commonly communicated.
0: Right. If everything comes in at a fifty percent chance of lying or truth, or something like that, then it's... well, it's also
2: just about local languages. So mm-hmm. these official detectors could be based on some average national behavior. But you in your local area kind of created norms about certain, you know, winking once means I'm hungry (laughs) or whatever. And and the national average doesn't know about this. And then you end up creating all these little local communities with local languages they can use just on the edge of outside detectability. They can talk to each other in ways outsiders don't understand because they're using a private language.
0: Yeah, it seems to me like it depends on how long we live with this technology, right? Because part of what we were imagining in our. Graphic novel is that this technology comes on very quickly, so culture doesn't have a lot of time to adapt. So basically, everyone's still walking around like they do now, pretending they don't know when someone is lying to them because that's what's polite. But in fact, their glasses are giving them like pretty accurate data. Um, but it's possible that like if we live with this technology right. for a while, we and just adapt. That's a great you know? thing
2: to mention, which is when you're doing futurism, a, a big way to classify behavior is <laughs> which behavior has adapted to the recent changes and which behavior hasn't. Right. And right. So some, you know, that's a Basically, the thing that doesn't adapt, you would just assume it's stuck. Some kind of behavior changes so slowly that for for all practical purposes, it's stuck. Mm. And it's just a constant we all take as given. And other kinds of behavior can adapt fast enough that in order to understand it, it has to be in, in an equilibrium with the other things that are going on.
1: I, I feel like this one actually might, you know, just day-to-day interactions around whether you call someone on lying or flirting or whatever would probably have to adapt very quickly almost by necessity just so people could function without uh, and and get along, right? Just like the the imperative to just sort of be on good terms with the people around you would, would demand. Yeah,
2: I mean, actually, one of the more interesting things today is when you have records of what people used to say, right? then uh, even if their current behavior is adapted, they can't erase the records of what they used to do. And then those used to behaviors violate current norms. And then we play this game about whether we're going to enforce the current norms on previous behavior.
1: Sure. And that's a tricky question. And, and it, it, that, I think, becomes more of a problem the quicker that norms are changing. I mean, is that something that you think is happening? Do you think uh, norms are, and culture around these things are ch- changing faster in some ways?
2: Or is I don't it- think culture is changing overall faster than it used to, but I just think it changes its focus about which parts it's going to focus on, and those parts can change faster. And so obviously, we've changed our behavior with respect to social media a lot more in the last ten years uh, because that's been a big focus. And you know some issues about uh, gender relations and racism or things like that those have changed more in the last few years than they used to. and again, but it's just always a different area that society is focused on. and in those areas there'll be more change.
1: but I guess what I mean is because we're you know it, it's a relatively recent phenomenon how you know globally connected we are i just sometimes i wonder if that in and of itself just drives faster cycles of change in terms of of social norms i, I wonder if that sounds plausible to you
2: it seems it seems actually harder to change more globally connected norms you think it would be easier to change more local ones there it, it, there's just more inertia the more you're tied to lots of different global areas uh, that are all connected to some set of norms the the more weight you have holding you back. Of mm. course, if you've got enough energy and attention to it, you could still overcome all of that.
0: Right, right. I think I see both of those things. I see maybe more calcification overall, but then um, among the things that change, they seem to fall like dominoes because once that critical mass of norm change appears to people, it influences more people than it would have in you know, quickly
2: in the past. We might be seeing more of a common knowledge effect, perhaps. I mean, maybe yeah, yeah. ideas could spread just as quick in the past, but we couldn't spread common knowledge as fast in the past. Right. And maybe now we're better able to find out that we all know about something quicker.
1: Right, yeah. I wanted to talk about that because that's in your book. It's not really part of your main thesis, but you do talk about the idea of common knowledge because it, you it's know, so important um, not just that you know something uh, that you think is wrong, uh, but that other people you you know that other people also know that the thing is wrong in order for you to do anything about it,
2: right right. So for a lot of these things you might think, okay, um, you know, he's flirting with her. That seems really obvious to me. surely it's obvious to pretty much any you know person who's lived been around for a while in any part of the world. how is this at all hidden? How, how is it that anybody thinks that this isn't obvious? And so, uh, you might be skeptical of this idea that we are doing all these things to hide things when they aren't hidden at all from your point of view. But they are hidden from the point of view of common knowledge. That is, we aren't all admitting it. We aren't all in the openly accepting it, even if most of us know it. And so that's the big difference. So, so for a lot of these things, what we it isn't so much that we're trying to hide the information from people. is that we're trying to prevent them from creating enough common knowledge on it such that they would... Uh, punish us
1: right and so if we're more in those particular areas where maybe like you talk about the emperor's new clothes for example where everybody sort of harbors some norm change they'd like to see but uh they sort of need to coordinate to bring that about and they need to have common knowledge for that then then in that case like having global communication might make those changes happen uh relatively more easily but i also agree with your other point that you know when, every, when you have sort of a monoculture of people that are connected, it also might be more calcified and harder to, to change than in local communities. So I sort of see both points of view.
0: Um, so for one last cr- question, let's try to push it even further out into the future. Uh, this is something I've been wanting to discuss with you uh, since I read the book. So as we move into the future, I think it is possible um, that even our motives themselves might become malleable. Uh, I could think of a couple of different ways that could happen through uh, human engineering or through M selection, which might be more up your alley, um, since you wrote uh, a book that we covered about um, emulated brains. Um, What do you think about that, about particularly uh, selecting for or against um, this phenomenon of having the elephant in the brain in in some kind of future uh, human descendant? Um, Intelligences
2: well, I was happy to admit uh, and grant that the actual motives will vary in uh, in their mix and importance, and the motives that we like to pretend to will also vary in their mix and importance. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you know mass education didn't exist a few hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. So everybody wasn't pretending to try to learn everything back then. <laughs> uh, similarly, today, we give a lot more lip service to say uh, innovation and creativity. And so we're often pretending at least more to be doing things for the purpose of innovation. And we didn't pretend much of that centuries ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, there wasn't really much of a pretense. It wasn't really a thing that we valued, so we didn't pretend to it much. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know there were things before that were not violations of norms that are more today. Clearly today, people are going to be trying harder to avoid any appearance of racism or sexism. And so uh, if there's if they actually do have some racism and sexism, which a lot of them do, A lot of us all do of course sure they will be trying harder today to uh you know excuse that to come up with other motives for any particular behavior there so certainly the things we like to pretend to have changed over time as a mix and even the things we actually want to change over time as a mix as i said regarding my last book my best theory of one factor theory of, of changes over the last few centuries is wealth that is, uh, we are changing, in effect, because we are richer. That's changed our behavior. That's changed what we actually want, and it's also changed what we pretend to want. When we're richer, we're less focused on starving. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we, uh, we work less, have more leisure. We are more uh, care more about egalitarian democracy, whereas before we were less subjected to that. Now we uh, object more, at least in public, to ra- to slavery and harsh treatment of criminals. Um we have more travel, more promiscuity, even, even in the past, we, we at least in public, put a much higher value on loyalty and, and fidelity in marriage. Um, these are all big changes over the last few centuries, that can, I think, can be understood in terms of changing wealth. And uh, those changes can continue for a while into the future as wealth continues. But as I say in the age of M, there's no guarantee that. Increasing per capita wealth will continue. Uh, the age of M, the M's themselves actually go back to being poor, and that make, means their values can go back to those of poor people.
0: Mm. Yeah, but they might be, we might want to um, select particular M's who are either more able to see their hidden motives or less able to see them, right? Uh, I feel like that's a, a choice that we'll make you, as a kind of society. Well,
2: so I, I think that M's will form organizations and they will be participants in those organizations. There will be organizational politics and they will be rewarded for playing organizational politics well. And as I discussed in the Age of M, I predict they'll in fact be better at organizational politics than we are. Mm-hmm. And so I use that to predict various features of how they behave in organizations. And I think that that means that they'll all be so cynically good at organizational politics that there are some pre- kinds of pretenses that we make today that they just won't even bother with. So, in that sense, <laughs> they, they would be less hypocritical. But, uh, you know, in other senses, they will be even better at uh, pretending to do the things you're supposed to pretend to while actually doing other things.
0: So, they might be more openly engaged in doing the things that we today are not supposed to be doing, right? Is what you're saying. But they might also be better at hiding. Those motives uh, from each other in ways that make sense for them. I
2: mean, I mean think of the example of morticians. Like, so most of us uh, being around a dead body is kind of a gross thing, right? And if one of us seemed to be really comfortable around a dead body, that would kind of freak us out too. Mm-hmm. Uh, among morticians, they're all pretty comfortable being around dead bodies. It's just their job, mm-hmm. and they don't really need to pretend to each other that they are <laughs> grossed out by dead bodies. Uh, they, in fact, more want to pretend the other way because it's just the norm among morticians. Mm-hmm. Similarly, among economists. <laughs> We're all supposed to assume that most people are relatively selfish. And so uh, it's not embarrassing among economists to attribute selfish motives to people and even to do a selfish analysis of of a strategic situation. Uh, Right. So, again, you know, when you create more common knowledge among a group that they all kind of know something, that can shift in a way that they don't really pretend it's not true.
0: Right. Right. That makes sense to me. And then the other side of that question is um, how might we design the world to take advantage of that? Like, Uh, In the example of M's, if these are emulated brains that are inside a simulated environment and we have some um, control over the simulated environment, which I know is a bunch of assumptions, but let's just make those for a second, um, we might design that world to uh, better align with the hidden motives that we know the M's uh, have. Um, in order to get whatever it is that we want out of them, whatever the work that we, what we actually want out of them. Does that make sense?
2: Well, I would just rephrase that in saying uh, workplaces will continue to evolve. Uh-huh. to, And in part, they'll continue to evolve to reduce the destructive costs of hidden motives and conflicts. Uh, so large organizations are really new. They're only a few centuries old.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: We still have a lot we don't know about how to structure them and how to organize them and, and how to create social and other sorts of contexts so that people work well together in them. And so a lot of the costs we have today of large organizations are due in part to the fact that we are pursuing various hidden motives while pretending to do other things. Most people in organizations have to pretend they're you know helping the organization as a whole to be more effective, and in fact, they're usually not doing that. That's not their priority.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Most
2: people in organizations are focused on their local political coalition and how to promote it. And that means there's a lot of inefficiencies in large organizations. But over time, again, through this long, slow process of just bumbling into different variations <laughs> and having the ones that work better you know, win and then get copied, we will slowly get better at that. And so I predict we will slowly get better at avoiding the destructive costs that we now have of organizational politics and creating a uh, better equilibria which better align people's actual motives with making things work,
1: so they'd be likely to be more efficient overall and and, and waste less resources and energy on on the signaling. And, and of course, this, like as you talk about, the signals would have to adapt dramatically to their situation.
2: Right. So today, for example, we have a priority on invention as opposed uh, invention of innovation as opposed to distribution of innovation. Uh, we like to celebrate inventors, but we don't like to celebrate distributors. <laughs> And that means there's a, a shame against uh, in distributing things. So we have the not invented here phenomena, where people do not want to adopt innovations from elsewhere. They want to uh, focus on the things they invented locally. Well, that's somewhat dysfunctional. Uh, presumably, M's would slowly learn to also celebrate distributors of innovations and not just inventors of innovations, so that there was less shame with copying something that's working well elsewhere. And that would make their organizations more innovative.
1: And of course, you mentioned they'd obviously be highly political, or at least that's part of your prediction um as far as the other basic motives you talk about in the book uh, sex seems to me is one of them that might be massively de-emphasized in this world
2: well at a functional level sex is vastly less important in the world of m um but of course it's very important inside humans psychologically and it's very unlikely that that will be pulled out (laughs) to a great you know before between now and then so uh, sex would becomes more important just as a way of bonding with people and, and making them feel loved and, and wanted and uh, connected uh, and valued uh, you know those will be still very important to people and so sex will serve those functions and it will it, it will be structured in order to uh, deal with those but the society will less need to manage sex in order to manage, the population and and the descendants so in ancient societies sex not only had all these psychological effects it was the basic you know mechanism by which the next generation got produced and it was really important to control sex in order to control the costs that you might be imposing on people and uh you know the big important parts of the society so it'll be less important for m society to centrally control sex in order to manage things but sex will still be pretty important
0: right that makes sense because m's are basically uh Black box copies of human brains, but it's also possible at some point in the future, um, perhaps after the age of M, if your uh, predicted scenario turns out to be the right one, uh, that we would be um, more knowledgeable about how the human brain works and able to engineer it more precisely, either through genetic engineering or through some other means. Right. And if that were the case, then it might be, you know, it might be advantageous or possible to engineer human like intelligences that don't um, that don't value that quite so much, which you know may be something that you want to do for efficiency's sake or that might it might end up not being a good idea i mean there's a lot of different ways that could go I don't necessarily pretend to know, but it it, it seems like right well, so uh, I think it's more likely is that- a
2: repurposing
0: Right, right, right. That,
2: that as long as you have any big part of your, right. you know, institution that that's there and it's hard to get rid of, you'll just try to find a new purpose for it. Mm-hmm. I mean, we already see that in old buildings. Sure, you know, old buildings have rooms and parts that were they were necessary a century ago because of the kind of heating systems and transportation, etc. They have that we just don't need anymore. Uh, you could just try to like cut out those rooms and make that the outside of the building, <laughs> but what you'd rather do is take those rooms and repurpose them for something else leave the rooms and areas there, but do something else with them, as long as they're there. Mm -hmm. Similarly, for parts of our brains, the first thing the future will try to do is repurpose them to find another use for them, to use them for something else. Uh, An analogy is food. M's don't need to eat, but eating food is is a very common social interaction that humans have, and we've layered lots of symbolic and other meanings on top of food. Mm -hmm. So rather than just never eating anymore, (laughs) more likely we'll still do what looks like eating, except we'll do something else with that eating process <laughs> maybe it'll be a mental health thing maybe we'll take you know mind modifying drugs when we eat and that'll be our leisure sort of letting our minds <laughs> go into different places i don't know exactly but uh again if there's anything else we can do with these things we'll probably find uh, a way to use them in some new way right. rather than just throwing them away right. sex looks like you could use it for lots of things so i expect uh, that'll continue Right, right. you know, it also seems I mean it actually seems like humans found ways to use sex for social bonding purposes uh, in homosexuality. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it it was used for reproduction, but it, it developed all these other associations, and those other associations uh, found other uses. And uh, it does seem like we have this other way we use sex.
1: So, um well, I think we've gotten sufficiently out there. Yeah, I think we've done we've we've done what we <laughs> right, aim check to do, that box. <laughs>
0: and uh, and really push this uh, as far as we, <laughs> as far as we can go, which is that's what we like to do here. Um, so, thank you very much for uh, coming uh, back to the show. It's always a pleasure to talk with you, and uh, I can recommend this book to our listeners. I really enjoyed it, so thanks for giving to us. Even though it's not strictly speaking a work of futurism, I think it does have. Uh, some implications for the future, and it's just a fun thing to read about the present as well.
2: And I can guarantee and say with assurance that we went places in this conversation that I haven't gone with anyone else in talking about the book.
1: Oh, well, thank you. That, oh, I that's that a huge compliment. Yeah, no, I highly, <laughs> highly recommend the book, and there are many, many interesting things uh, that we just wouldn't have had time to get into at all. So listeners should definitely check it out. So is
0: there anything else you wanted to tell our uh, listeners before we sign off, Robin?
2: No, just thanks for listening.
0: Okay, that wraps up uh, today's podcast. So until next time,
2: I'm John
1: Perry. I'm Ted Cupper, And you've been listening to Review the Future. To subscribe or leave a comment on
0: this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send
2: emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening.